Open our hearts, Father, that we may receive your word and that your word would find success according to your sovereign will. Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds to give us understanding and to see the usefulness of your word to our lives, both individually and corporately. That, Father, you would conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The passage upon which our teaching is based this morning comes from the letter of Paul to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are starting a new series of sermons, and I know you're kind of going, wait a second, the book of Romans? Won't it be the year 2034 or something before you finish that? That is like the theological Mount Everest. Well, here's how we're going to do it. We are going to take it in bite-sized chunks. And so between now for the next couple of months, I'd say up to the time leading to Palm Sunday and Easter, we are going to be looking at the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And one of the reasons we're doing this way is Romans as a kind of systematic treatise. Let me give you a little context. When Paul says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, a servant of Christ Jesus, a bond servant. Here's kind of Paul's reasoning. We're so used to thinking of Paul strictly as a pastor, as a theologian, as a systematic theologian. At heart, Paul was a missionary. And he was a missionary who wanted to take, he, his life had been gripped by the gospel. So the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the kind of the subtitle, I wasn't too clever or creative or innovative in this, but I call it not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It comes out of Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We'll look at that next week. That's the theme of the gospel. And Paul, at heart, even though he was a deep thinker, and he was a great pastor, and he was a great intellectual theologian, at heart he was a missionary who wanted to take the gospel to the entire world. And so when you get to the end of the book of Romans, he says that part of what he wants to do is take it to Spain which was pretty far to the west in the Roman Empire. Now, up until this point, Paul's home base, if you would, was Antioch on the Mediterranean Sea. What he wanted to do was kind of change his hub from Antioch to Rome. Rome was the capital of the empire, so he wanted to make that kind of his home base. And what he did, he wanted the church at Rome to pretty much accept him. Accept him and accept his ministry. So what did he do? He sent ahead first 
kind of a theological treatise saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is what I teach, this is what I am promulgating and promoting. And thus, you've got the production in roughly A.D. 57 of the letter to the Romans. Now, the theme of the book of Romans, I've just said, is the gospel. And the passage we're looking at today, Paul will say he's set apart for the sake of the gospel. When we get to verses 16 and 17, we're going to see that the gospel is the very power of God. Chapters 1 to 3 that we're focusing on in these coming months tell us all about the universal need of the gospel, that the gospel is our only hope, that the gospel is God's solution, not only to man's problem, in other words, the gospel is not just about our individual salvation or our individual personal relationship with God, but also to God's entire project of making the earth his home, his kingdom. The gospel is about the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things, begun now and completed at the consummation of all things in the new world. So the gospel is the theme of Paul's letter to the Romans, and although there are so many different, I'll call them sub-themes, topics that are covered in Paul's letter, they are all a part of this overall theme of the renewal of all things through the gospel. So, for instance, chapters 1 through 3 talks about our need for the gospel. You get to chapters 4 and 5, and he talks about, I'll call it the subtopic of justification by faith, which, by the way, is not the definition of the gospel, but one maybe a chief benefit of the gospel. Because of the good news and the accomplishment and the work of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and declared righteous. Romans chapter 4 and 5 talk about that. Romans chapters 6 through 8 talk about the doctrine of sanctification. What does it look like to live out of the gospel in lives that are, as Paul says, dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus? When you become a Christian, a fundamental change occurs in your life that empowers you to live the new life. Chapters 9 through 11, Paul addresses a very uh, pertinent theme in the first century church, and that is, what about the nation of Israel? And he addresses that. And then chapters 12 through 16 kind of talk about some various practical themes. Our relationship to the government, forgiveness of one another, spiritual gifts are covered in that. In this passage, what we have and we're looking at, so we're beginning Romans, we're beginning our series on Romans 1 to 3, and we're looking this morning at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And in this passage, we have Paul's salutation, his opening words to the letters at the church at Rome. And it is introducing the overall theme of the letter, the good news of God's intervention into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know, so here's the purpose of the sermon. Here's the thesis of the sermon. He wants you to understand the importance, the centrality of the gospel. And he communicates the centrality of the gospel in four ways in this text. Last week's sermon, and and I don't know, maybe I'm trying to get simpler as I go on. Last week's sermon was four S's. We're just going to pick a different letter of the alphabet this week. How's that sound? This week's outline is four P's. Four P's that highlight the centrality and the importance of the gospel. You've got the priority, the promise, the power, and the purpose of the gospel. 
the priority of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the purpose of the gospel. Okay? Let's take a look first at the priority of the gospel. One of the things we have to recognize is that Paul is writing a letter in the first century, and in the culture of the first century, which was Greek cultures, ancient letters would typically begin with a simple, they followed a simple format. They'd have an identification of the sender. So you notice in every one of Paul's letters, he begins with Paul. He's identifying himself. I'm the one sending you this letter. Then the recipients and a brief greeting. New Testament letters typically follow this pattern, but often add something distinctive about their message. You read Galatians, and all of a sudden you've got, church, Galatia, you're departing from the gospel. He's embellishing a little bit to highlight what he wants to say to them. Well, he does the same thing here to the church at Rome. Maybe because he has never visited the church, maybe because he wants to make it his home base. Remember the missionary purpose that I spoke about? But in verses 1 through 6, he follows this pattern along with this, I'll call it this embellishment of the sender. That's verses 1 through 6. And then the beginning of verse 7a, he finally gets to the recipients and finally the greeting. Now look with me at verse 1. Here's the priority of the gospel. Paul introduces himself. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm the one writing this letter. Who am I? I'm a servant, literally a slave, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And I'm called to be an apostle. And here's specifically what talks about the priority of the gospel. My life has been set apart. Not to be a husband, not to be a father, not to be a worker somewhere, but my life has been set apart. So that means all those other aspects of whatever our life can be come underneath the giant rubric of belonging to and being set apart for the gospel of God. Everything else takes second place, which immediately forces us with an application. Have we been set apart for the gospel of God? Doesn't mean we're called to be an apostle. That's not our calling. We're talking the overall. Has your life been set apart that the gospel truly comes first? It comes before your family. It comes before your job or career. It comes before everything else. This is the absolute priority of the gospel. This is also his identity and shows us his status. See, your status comes from who you are. So Paul is saying, because I'm a servant, I'm a bond servant, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, and I'm called to be apostle, this, my status comes from whom I belong to. I belong to Jesus Christ, and that gives me status. Now notice something else. He says he did not call himself. His call is initiated by God. In other words, he's not re- representing himself. He's not saying, I, Paul, let me share with you my vision. Let me share with you my interests. Let me share with you my agenda. No, he's coming representing God and Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. He is coming as an official representative of Jesus. In fact, when we get down, if you look down with me at verse 7, when he gets to the recipients section of this introduction, look at how he identifies the believers. He identifies with the believers at Rome with the same language. 
I, Paul, and he's going to have that embellishment. Now, verse 7, to all in Rome who are, and here's your identity and status, loved by God and called to be saints. His status, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Your status, loved by God and called to be saints. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, this language would be very familiar with those who are familiar with the language of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, were referred to those who were especially elected, chosen, and loved by God. They are God's chosen people, a people of God's own treasured possession. So immediately, one of the things we're to pick up here and notice is the continuity between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. Paul is using language to describe the church that would have been used of ancient Israel. He's calling the church by their special status, loved by God, called to be saints. You have a unique and special relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the word saints here literally means holy ones, set apart ones. Israel was referred to as God's holy nation. In Peter's first letter in chapter 2, he refers to the church as God set apart, God separated, God accepted, and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, taking the language that was applied to Israel and specifically applying it to the church. Now, I want you to notice something else here, and this is extremely important. Notice the order of this. The church, and that means you and I, are first those who are loved by God and then called to be holy, called to be saints. You must first know you are loved, really loved. That means safe. That means secure. That means significant before you are holy. You know who you are, that you're secure, you're accepted. And out of that, this is very important because you live out of the fact that you're loved. You don't live to achieve that love. That is so important because how many of us, and this is kind of, this is one of those things, maybe we should go back to the confession part of our worship. Because this is one of those things that I think happens a lot subconsciously. I don't think we consciously walk around, oh yeah, I've got to earn my love with God. But I wonder how much that dynamic impacts and controls kind of our subconscious. We need, notice Paul says his whole life, he's talking about here, we are loved by God first. You're safe, you're secure. You can't get any more secure. And then out of that, you're called to a distinctive life. Next, this is the last thing I'm going to mention. I've mentioned it a little bit briefly about the priority of the gospel, and that is that Paul says his whole life has been set apart. His whole life has been set apart for the gospel of God. One commentator put it, the gospel is something so great, so magnificent, that Paul is willing to separate himself from anything, wealth, health, acclaim, friends, safety, in order to be faithful to it. How can he say this? How can Paul say this? And how can he live this way? He knows he's loved by God. He is truly 
secure. He is loved by God and called to be an apostle. See, how about you? Do you know, I mean really know, that you are loved by God and that God richly enjoys you and delights in you? Do you see everything through that prism, the prism of the gospel? Friends, that's the first point, the priority of the gospel. Look with me at verse 2 and the promise of the gospel. This will be a fairly brief point, but it's very important. Verse 2 says, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scripture. Now, when did the prophets prophesy in the Holy Scripture? That was the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, see, what is this telling us? This is telling us the gospel is not some new innovation. This is not a fad. This is not like, okay, first of all, suits were wide, then suits went skinny. This is not a fad of clothing. This is not go out and look at the spring line of clothing and the fall line of clothing. you got a new thing. The gospel is not a new invention. He's telling him that this thing he is expositing, the gospel, the good news, is not something new. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, the good news of Jesus is firmly rooted in the soil of the Old Testament. And Martin Luther said, Scripture is completely prophetical. See, this is completely consistent with Jesus' message. Paul is not giving a message different from Jesus's. Jesus said that after he was resurrected, speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, now think about Jesus' words here carefully. When did Moses write? Isn't that the books of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Isaiahs and Jeremiahs and Ezekiels and Daniels and Hoseas, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I love how Ed Clowney, former president of Westminster Seminary, put it. He says, there are great stories in the Bible, but it is possible to know Bible stories and yet miss the Bible story. He says, the Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel, but it does not begin there, nor does it contain what you would expect in a national history. He says, if we forget the one storyline, we cut the heart right out of the Bible. Sunday Sunday school stories are then told as tamer versions of the Sunday comics, where Samson substitutes for Superman. David becomes a Hebrew version of Jack the Giant Killer. He says, no, David is not a brave little boy who isn't afraid of the big bad giant. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the Lord's champion. God chose David as a king after his own heart in order to prepare and communicate to us David's greater son, our deliverer, our hero, our champion. See, here's the principle. Here's how to read the Bible. The principle is that every part of of the scripture is not understood unless it is seen as pointing beyond itself to Christ. In fact, the scripture could be encapsulated almost like a John the Baptist pointing beyond itself. What did John say? I must decrease, he must increase. 
the Scripture in all of its parts. No history, no set of laws, no prophecies, no wisdom literature is ever an end in itself. It is always pointing beyond itself to the Scriptures. That's why Paul says the promise of the gospel is promised beforehand through the prophets in the authoritative word of God. Look with me now at verses 3 and 4 and the power of the gospel. It says the gospel, and you have to read this. this is, I love how Paul writes, by the way. Almost like one giant run-on sentence. You ever notice no, no uh, commas or periods? Paul gets going. This is set apart for the gospel, by the way. I don't mind get going a little bit because I go... I'm never going to be a Paul, but I go, if he does it, I guess that's a good imitation, good example to imitate. So he talks about set apart for the gospel of God. He keeps going. It was promised beforehand through the prophets. And and then he says, here's the power, regarding his son. So what is the gospel about? The gospel is about Jesus Christ. Not about principles for living. The gospel itself regards his son. Jesus is the subject, the object, and the topic of the gospel. And who is Jesus? According to the flesh, he was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now, what in the world do those verses mean? First of all, a little history. There are many commenting, many scholars believe that this was an early Christian hymn that Paul was utilizing for his purposes of communicating to his listeners and to his readers. First of all, he's telling them that the content of the gospel is Jesus Christ. He says, regarding his son, the gospel is all about Jesus. And then these verses, in poetic, hymn-like fashion, summarize the vocation of Jesus. And here's where especially it can be an early hymn, because in the Greek, it is capturing better than, I'm afraid, the English, the parallelism of these statements. Verse 3 begins regarding his son, and then a verse or a stanza, some translations put, who as to his human nature, the ESV says, according to the flesh, was a descendant of David. And then in parallel, it says, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now let's ask ourselves this question, how is this the power of the gospel? Some translations, and I'm afraid the NIV is one of them, and I think the NIV is incorrect here, make it out to be that this is describing the two natures of Christ, his humanity and his deity, that he's 100% human and he's 100% divine. I think, and I go along with many commentators, and I tend to agree with them, that probably think that the more correct translation that this, first of all, the two natures is incorrect and that the correct would be more like, see, first the verb in verse 4 that is translated declare has the meaning of appointed. Jesus was never appointed to be God. Jesus was always the second person of the Trinity, was always fully divine. So as one writer put it, thus this verse does not mean that the resurrection made clear that what Jesus already was. Rather, It qualified him to attain an entirely new status. Doesn't mean that Jesus became son of God at the time of the resurrection. That was assumed. He always was the son of God. 
but he became the Son of God in power, which means when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, his entire mission and vocation was validated, and he was given authority in history to rule and reign. What does it mean he was appointed, declared Son of God in power? It means what he claimed, the kingdom of God has come in my person. God the Father in his resurrection is saying, that is true. Bank on it. He was given authority and history to dispense salvation to all who would believe in him. So as another commentator put it, these verses do not assert the two natures of Christ. They don't deny it. They assume it. It is. He is 100% human and 100% divine. Rather, they describe the two stages in history of the existence of his ministry. The contrast is between the old age of the flesh, and that's the era that is passing away, and the spirit, or the new age, the new era, begun or inaugurated by Christ's work of redemption and being implemented by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the power of the gospel is that it is ushering in a new age. But elsewhere, Paul calls concerning Jesus and his resurrection the first fruits of the new creation, the first fruits of the new world to come. Paul is saying that has begun now with Jesus' resurrection and ascension. That's the power of the gospel. It has brought the end of history and begun it in the middle of history. A major theme in Paul's letter to the Romans. And lastly, what was Paul's aim or purpose? He says, through whom, verse 5, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the nations among all the nations. Now, what does this phrase mean? It can be a very confusing phrase. Does it mean somehow that faith in Christ leads to or produces an obedient life? Or can it mean an obedience that can be described or equated as faith? In some ways, and I love how some writers put it, they kind of go, yes. In other words, it could be a little of both, but it's much more nuanced than that. See, for one thing, we have to be very careful not to think of faith as kind of a first stage and then divorce it completely from obedience. That's kind of a second stage. We need to see faith as central to the entirety of our Christian life. Just as you received Christ by faith, you will continue to live your Christian life entirely by faith. That's why later on in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 14, verse 23, he says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So it is not a two-stage process of discipleship, where the first stage is to receive Christ and the second stage is to follow Christ as Lord. Nor is it kind of a merging together and equating obedience and faith. Like they're one and the same thing. This is something I want you to visualize it or picture it. It's like a coin. A coin can't be set. You have one coin. You have a quarter. But it's got two sides. A heads and a tail. These two things are distinguished. They're not the same thing. You don't merge them together. But they're two sides of the same coin. So as one commentator put it, faith if genuine, 
If the object is Christ, where you will be united to Jesus Christ and one with him and connected to him, that faith that connects you to Christ will always produce. Sometimes lesser, sometimes greater. We're not talking about quantity here, but it will produce a changed life. And obedience, if true obedience, must be accompanied by faith. See, obedience is never, ever the basis of our assurance. Our obedience, our works is always flawed, is always imperfect, is always mixed, is always incomplete and inconsistent. Thus, our works can never be the basis of being assured of our relationship. Of our, that's why, remember the order, loved by God, secure, completely secured, and called to be holy. Your holiness is never the basis of your standing with God. Jesus Christ alone is the basis of your standing before God. But faith, if it's real faith, will produce changes, will produce the fruit of the Spirit, will produce a semblance of allegiance to Christ, that we are as a process progressively learning to live out. And Paul is saying, my aim is to preach. My aim is to teach this obedience of faith, where these two mutually interpret each other. A faith that produces an obedient life, an obedience that is absolutely filled and consumed with faith, coming from a deep embrace that you are loved by God through the work of Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. Paul is saying, this is the good news. This is what I want you to embrace. This is what is central. This is what, remember what I preached last week? This is what we're called to remember. To remember the gospel, its priority, its promise, its power, and its purpose. Lord God, thank you for Paul's letter to the Romans. And Lord, may we continue to grow in making the gospel more central. That embracing the fact that we're loved, that we're enjoyed, that we're delighted in, we would grow in our allegiance to you and our desire for you and our hunger after you. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.